And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The seventh and final church to which Jesus has John write is Laodicea. This was 50 miles to the south of the last city, which was Philadelphia. We began at Ephesus. We have made almost a complete clockwise circuit, uh, but it will end here at Laodicea. We actually talked about this city not that long ago. In Daniel chapter 11, it prophesied uh, Greek history and what would take place after the fall of Persia before the rise of Rome. And we learned during that Bible study about the Seleucid king Antiochus II. It's not Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, who was the foreshadowing of the Antichrist. This is Antiochus II. He had a wife named Laodice which is where you'd get the word Laodicea, Laodice. And he named this city after her. And the story, my history, not just a story, goes that when the uh, Egyptian kings, the Ptolemies, the Greek kings in Egypt, wanted to make an alliance, he divorced his wife, Laodice, and he married the daughter of King Ptolemy. Now, Laodice did not take that lying down. She had her husband and his children and his wife assassinated so that she could set up her son as the king. And it started another one of the wars between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. But that's where this city gets its name from. And the city of Laodicea was a prosperous trade city. You've seen some of these cities have been major, important cities. Some of them not so much. Laodicea was an important trade city because it was known for its exports of black wool. They cultivated and raised black sheep at Laodicea so they could make wool and spin it and send it out without having to dye it, which of course was a better quality than having to watch the dye fade out. It was so prosperous that in AD 60, an earthquake leveled the city, completely destroyed Laodicea. Emperor Nero sent offers of imperial assistance to rebuild the city. Laodicea said, no, thank you. We don't need it. We're so rich. We don't even need your help. Oh, emperor, we'll build it back ourselves. And they did. And by the time 30 years plus after that, when this letter is written, they were right back where they had started. This is the city to which we are writing. And Jesus identifies himself here. Remember, this, these letters were dictated by Jesus. They were not just written by John on behalf of Jesus. He was dictating. This is what you say. Here's how he identifies himself as the amen. Amen is a Hebrew word, which means assuredly. Or verily, we say it at the end of prayers as a, as a way of marking it off and saying, so let it be so. When Jesus in his preaching would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. Literally there what he was saying was, amen, amen, I say unto you. And he calls himself here the amen. Paul in 2 Corinthians identified Jesus, that in him all of God's promises are yes and Amen. It says, I am the great witness, the true witness. That word is, is martyr. That's what the word witness is in Greek, is martyr. It's where it comes from. He was the one who was faithful and maintained the testimony unto death. And he is the beginning of creation. Now, don't get this wrong like the Arians did. That word for beginning, arche, doesn't mean the first thing God made. It means I'm the beginning. It came from me. I am the origin of creation. I'm the source of creation. It can even be rendered the ruler over creation. RK, that he says, not only am I the true one who maintained the testimony, I'm the one that created the world. All of these things speak of sincerity. Can you see that? Because Jesus is going to get on the church in Laodicea for being insincere 
in their relationship with God. And so what Jesus says is, I have shown you on the cross how to take something seriously and to care about it. Now, to some people, I've mentioned this several times, we're finally going to get to it this morning. To some people, and there are some very prominent uh, interpreters that I love, who interpret these letters as representing, each one represents an age of church history. I'm sure you've heard this before. That the church in Ephesus, you've left your first love represents the post-apostolic age, that once the apostles had gone, the church was doing what it was supposed to, but they had lost that early passion, that love that they had for Jesus Christ, or maybe even their love for one another. They would say that the second church, Smyrna, represents the early persecutions that emperors, the emperors of Rome brought down upon the church. The third one, which is the church of uh, Pergamum, Represent to them when, it, when Constantine the Great not only permitted the uh, worship of Jesus Christ in Rome, but how his descendants established the church of, of Jesus Christ as the official religion of the Roman Empire. That this became Romanization. That the one after that, Thyatira, right? That you have that woman Jezebel. That this represents the medieval age in the church when all of the excessive doctrines about the, the ascension of Mary and the immaculate conception of Mary and the worship of the saints and the idolatry of mass when all those things began to came about. For the church of Sardis represents the hypocrisy of the Reformation. They had a name that they were alive, but for many of these Christians, it was a political movement only. There was nothing in the heart of it. And it was used and abused and kicked back and forth. If you read your history, that is unfortunately what happened. Henry VIII being the, the highest example of that, I would say. Last week, the church of Philadelphia, right? The church that receives no condemnation from Jesus, but was, was said, you, you're doing everything right. For them, they see that as the age of revival and awakening. George Whit, uh, Whitfield and John Wesley and Charles Wesley going down to, uh, into the United States when you had men like Charles Finney. At this age, when revival was just sweeping the globe and missions started to go out and the church was exploding like it never had before. And these interpreters inevitably arrive at number seven, Laodicea representing the modern day, leading to the last days of the church. Now, all of this is very suggestive. And when you hear it explained by somebody who really believes it, boy, it's really hard to argue with them. You say, that sure seems to fit. And also, if you look at the church of Laodicea, as we'll see today, it does match the other descriptions the Bible has of the church in the last days. When Jesus said in Matthew 24, the love of many will grow cold. In 2 Timothy 3, when Paul gives that long, brutal list of what people in the last days will be like, right? Lacking natural affection, ruthless, he said that they would be. However, as I've said, I'm sympathetic to this, but I don't know if I can stand up here and tell you this is definitely how to interpret this. Let me tell you why. First of all, it does seem rather focused on Western church history, you know, tracing the, the gospel from Israel up to Rome, up to the, you know, Europe in the Reformation, over to America. It does kind of seem to be, have an us-centered context. That said, I don't want to be, you know, too cute about this, that that is where the center of Christianity has gone around the world. So there is that to consider, but it does seem narrow, right? There's been churches all over the world forever. Uh, also, people that have held this view throughout history have tended to adjust how they interpret this to kind of fit 
the plan of history, kind of what's happening at the time. Uh, there were many that believed the millennium had come when, uh, after the Reformation was open, over, and they had to kind of adjust this interpretation for the events that happened later. So that makes me a little more suspicious of it. And also, there's nothing explicit in the text that tells us this is how we're supposed to interpret it this way. And that's the big one. Right? Jesus does not say these things represent ages of the church. He says, write to this church here in this city. Each one of these was a very real church and a very real city. And the warning for each of us as a church, as we've seen at the end of each letter, is let everyone who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's telling us these are the kinds of problems any church can fall into, so you've got to watch out for these things. I do think you can believe that and believe that they are representative of ages of the church. Uh, but I don't know if I can stand here and say this is definitely the case. And I wanted to explain that a little bit. And if you come up here and you say, I'm convinced, I'm not going to fight with you. And if you come up and say, I don't know about that, then you know what? I'm not going to fight with you either. That said, I do believe that we are living in the last days. Uh, partly because the Bible says we're living in the last days. John said that we're living in the last hour. So what does that make this 2,000 years later? Last few minutes? Stoppage time, if you want to use a soccer analogy there. And I also do believe that of all the churches described in Revelation 2 and 3, the one that best describes the age and culture in which we are living is Laodicea. So whether this is how God decided to reveal this to us, or whether that's just the way it falls in our time, this is how we're going to discuss it. This is the only church of the seven that will receive no commendation from Jesus, that will have nothing good said about it. Even Sardis, the dead church, said, but I mean, you got a few. You got a few guys that are doing it right. Not Laodicea. This is intense reading. This is Jesus speaking. And he speaks with all the authority of the one that died on the cross and rose again. I do not know, other than maybe a few passages in the Minor Prophets, of a more intense, in-your-face, uncomfortable passage of Scripture for a New Testament Christian to read. And you are going to hear it preached today by somebody who believes this. Just as Laodicea didn't need the assistance of the emperor, when the earthquake came. This church felt no burning need towards Christ. They didn't feel a need for Jesus. They knew that Jesus was important and they believed to an extent, but their hearts were cold. In fact, they were worse than cold, we're going to see. And we're living in the same kind of world today. And I urge you to hear these words. Because if we believe in the soon coming rapture of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us that before that happens, there will be an apostasy. And we will not be held guiltless for that if we are in that generation. So let us read verses 15 through 17. These are the words of Jesus Christ. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus Christ is staring down the Laodicean church. He's not mincing words. He's not wasting time. He's not trying to make them feel good. He looks them dead in the eye and says, here's my problem with you. They were lukewarm. Lukewarm means room temperature. 
Not cold, not hot, somewhere in the middle. Now, how we understand this passage very much determines on how we understand Jesus' illustration here. What does it mean that they were lukewarm? There are two options that are very close to one another, and I will allow you to sort these out on your own. The first one is that they were useless. Cold water is refreshing on a hot day. Hot water is useful for cleaning. You can make tea, you can make coffee with it. Lukewarm water isn't good for anything. And Laodicea, in this view, was useless and accomplishing nothing. Jesus was like, there's nothing I can do with you. There's nothing special about you that allows me to put you to good use. Sometimes people refer to the fact that Laodicea was so far away from the hot springs and the cold water of the sea that by the time the water made it to Laodicea, it was always lukewarm. I've seen other people that have claimed that that is probably not as likely and that in fact Laodicea had hot springs. I'm always cagey about definitely referring to an archaeology point to interpret scripture. But uh, that is one view and it's a very popular one and it's an appropriate one. does seem to me to be overkill what Jesus is saying to them if that's the case. If their only problem was that they weren't doing enough, he said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I don't know. Here's the second one, and I think this is more common. They were noncommittal. Cold in this passage, as it often does in Scripture, represents rebellion against God. Their hearts were cold toward him. They were lifeless. And hot, though, then represent zeal and passion for God, burning for the Lord. A.W. Tozer talked about the society of the burning heart. In this view, Laodicea was like the, the Israelites before Elijah. They were limping. They were halting between two opinions. They couldn't make up their mind. They had no passion for either one. They were just drifting. Now the question becomes, how could God prefer open rebellion to lukewarm Christianity? Is it either zeal or nothing? And some people will just say, that can't be it. But I do hold mostly to that second view, I'll tell you. And I can say this because Jesus hated pretension more than anything else. Look at him talking to the Pharisees. Their doctrine was right. Their morals were right. But their hearts were rotten. Because they were great sinners? No, because they were whitewashed tombs. They were halfway They were were using their position to forward themselves. They didn't really care about the Lord. They were using the trappings of religion to build a good life for themselves without really caring about it. The prophets addressed this over and over again. In either case, the point, as Jesus will say, is Laodicea lacked zeal. They had no fire. They had no passion for the Lord. They were drifting through their religious life. And the reason is given to us by our Lord Jesus. They were rich. Riches kept them from realizing the truth about themselves. They never stopped to think, how am I doing? They never examined themselves, as Paul said, to see whether they were in the faith. Because everything is going great for me. They didn't rouse themselves and do something about it. Indeed, they couldn't because they were so stuffed with stuff. They couldn't do anything about it. And you and I are prosperous people. Even if you are poor in this country, it does not compare to the poverty of other places. And we look at somebody and feel bad for them when they can only afford one car and iPhone, as opposed to having a whole house and a fleet of vehicles for themselves. So that means that we fall prey to the same temptation. And this is, we're going to see how this goes. I hope you, if you're taking notes, will you trace this with me? There's a road that starts at prosperity and that ends in the place where Laodicea was. It does not have to go this way, but you may be along this road. So here's the first stop is prosperity. 
Riches are not in and of themselves a bad thing. The danger comes when you start to put your trust in those things. Consider, when you don't have to strive for your food or for your survival anymore, things change in your life. Used to be, time was, if you wanted a house, you had to go out into the woods, chop down some trees, fight off the wolves, build a house for yourself. You wanted food, you had to go out into the woods, kill something, drag it home, and eat it. If you wanted to stay warm, you better get busy making garments. You've got to make sure you're taking care of yourself that way. But when you get to the point where you're no longer having to survive, your entire priorities in life begin to change. And we live in the richest country ever, not just in the world, ever, period. And that accounts for inflation, by the way. Subsistence is the farthest thing from our minds. You've never had to worry about where your meal came from. If you really needed to, you could go out back to the grocery store and say, hey, can I just have that before you throw it away? We, we, we've got addictions to food. We have allergies to food. We have so much food that we have to stop eating. We have to pay a lot of money to pay people to tell us to stop. We're doing just fine. And so what that means is that we are not usual. We are not normal in that sense. All that energy has to go somewhere. Now, this can either be the greatest opportunity the world has ever known or the greatest temptation the world has ever known. Because what's the temptation? Number two, frivolity. The temptation is to spend all the time and energy that is available to you because of your riches, not to improve life for other people, not to find someone who's poor and lift them up, not to pursue noble things, not to try to improve the situation you've been given and give your time to the Lord and realize I don't need all of this. Let's give it to the work of the, of the Lord. Let's find somebody who's hungry and feed them. Let's find someone who's never heard the gospel and go to them. Even things like creating wonderful, beautiful art that the world has never seen because you're independently wealthy and you don't have to do this. But to pursue instead, frivolity is the temptation. To be entertained day after day after day after day. There's finding things that make you feel good in the moment. And when it's over, it doesn't really add anything to you. You haven't gained anything. You haven't learned anything. You haven't done anything. But you've passed the time and you were maybe smiling and laughing a little bit. Games and television and fast food and social media, it's all cotton candy. It's frivolous. It sucks your attention. It uses your time. And as soon as it's over, you haven't gained anything other than wasting time. Chasing things that mean nothing. Which leads to number three. Why is that a problem? It leads to apathy. Apathy comes from a Greek word, pathos. It means passion or suffering. It can even mean tragedy. It's big, deep experience of life. Apathy is the opposite of that. It means no passion. It means to be complacent. It means to not care. An inability to rouse your spirit when it's needed. If you've got everything you need and you use all of your time and energy to waste on things that mean nothing, when the time comes when you are needed to be roused and show a little pathos, you can't because you're out of practice. You have trained yourself to be nothing. Consider how short-lived even our outrage is. Oh, we're so angry. And then the next day we're right back to where we started. We can't care for very long. And if we do care deeply for a long time, we start thinking we've got some sort of disorder. Why am I still upset about this? Because it's a grieving thing and you should be. 
It's so easy, even when you are angry or you're sad or you're joyful and you're feeling one of the heights or depths, that pathos of life, it's so easy to be lulled right back into that satiated state. Wow, I just went and I, I won. <laughs> Whatever your competition was, I won. All that hard work finally paid off and you go home and you turn on the TV and now you don't care anymore. And it's as if it n- never happened. We might know that something is wrong. We can't muster up the ability to care. And number four, the final state of this is captivity. To be in this state is to be a prisoner. Whether you're just in a cage that you've made for yourself and there's nobody to blame and nobody's putting anything on you, you're just living in this, these bars that you set up for yourself. Or somebody else. The Caesars used to give the people bread and circuses, right? Give them food, give them a party, and they won't care what we do. That's where Christians were executed in the arena because the devil had a plan there. They never thought to consider these people that are trying to tell us good news are being executed for our own entertainment, but he kept them captive. And that's the other captor that we can have is the devil himself. You become harmless. You become impotent. You become caged like an animal in a zoo. You're like a killer whale with a collapsed dorsal fin because you've been penned up so long. There's no strength left in you. This kind of Christian, this lukewarm Christian, has everything he needs. So he spends his life on useless things. All of his time and all of his energy, or shall we say the bulk of his time and the bulk of his energy and the bulk of his efforts and the bulk of his money are spent on useless things. He cannot care about heaven. He cannot care about hell because he's too busy being numbed and anesthetized by the frivolity of life. So therefore, he's useless in the fight against evil. God can't use him because he's so stuck. And this kind of life makes Jesus sick. I'm going to spit you out. I don't care for the way they sanitize the translation. The word is emeo. It means vomit. You make me so sick, I'm going to vomit you up, Jesus says. When you have a a drink that's that's lost, a coffee that's not hot anymore, you you put it in your mouth and you go, oh, it's disgusting. You pour it out and go get something else. That's how Jesus felt about this church. The drink that had ice in it and the ice had melted and now it was all watered down. It wasn't good. And you dump it out. That's how Jesus felt about this church. And if you are like this church, it's how Jesus feels about you. Makes him sick. Look at us. We're we're so detached. We're detached from reality. Some of y'all aren't even listening to me. You're watching me and evaluating like you're not even here. I wonder how everybody else would respond to this. You can't even engage in the moment. We're like academics who don't do anything. We just sit there and write about it and analyze it and break it down. We're dilettantes. We're just like to be around what other people are doing. We comment on things. We make judgments on what real men are doing. We have thin souls. We're men without chests. We can't care because we have the ability has been taken from us. Small, silly people can't even sit through an hour-long Bible study without needing to get up and get a coffee. How do you see this born out in the church? Selfish complaints. You come to worship the Most High God without need of a sacrifice because Christ has shed His blood and drawn you out of the pit of sin and lifted you up and called you His own child. And you come into church and you come to worship and you say, I don't like this song. That's lukewarm. There's no passion. There's no fire. There's there's no sense that says, who cares? Jesus is alive. I'm going to sing complaining over people. There are some people who have no religion. Their religion is to complain about other people. 
They go online and they find somebody doing it wrong. They point out how they're doing it wrong and they say, that's spirituality. It's not. It's a lie. It's lukewarm. It's frivolity. It's the same thing as an ESPN analyst evaluating the coaches and the players after the game. And you think that God is proud of you. He's not. Or even the scriptures. Turn your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. Oh, I guess I'm not, not coming to this one today. Maybe if he starts teaching through the book of, of John or, or Joshua, then I'll, then I'll come. But this one just bores me. I don't know if I like what Jesus said in that passage. I don't know if I agree with that. It's a lukewarm heart. It's folks coming to church with nothing to offer God. They just, bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. Jesus, I need help for my lukewarm life. I'm feeling sad because nothing I do means anything. Can you make me feel better at the start of the week? And you're treating Jesus just like you do another cup of coffee, another scroll through Instagram, another drive through You're using him the same way. Even the fury of the church is weak. And the church ought to be furious sometimes. We're so upset. We're so upset over what's going on in the schools. Oh, can you believe they're teaching trans things? Can you believe they're teaching CRT or whatever your issue is? We've got to put a stop to it. Why do you think they're trying this? Why do you think they feel so comfortable pushing these things? Because they did it with removal of prayer and pushing atheism and teaching kids in the religion class that there is no God. And the church got angry, made a little noise, and sent their kids anyway. We went right along with it. See, someone pull your, pull your kids out of school? You're missing the point. Wake up. Do you think that ranting on Facebook makes you holy? It doesn't. Evil advances because there's no power in the church. I heard somebody the other day say, you would think that after the pandemic that the church would have flooded with sinners wanting to come and pray and ask God what's going on. Y'all, there's no Christians praying in the church. The Christians didn't even show up to pray. We're all upset. What are they doing in the school? What's going on in God's house? Why do you care about the White House so much? Nobody prays. Nobody comes. Nobody weeps. When's the last time you wept before the Lord? When's the last time you had that depth of feeling? And if you did, what happened afterwards? You get up and you get another sandwich and you felt better by the time you got home? The world presents us with a set of options. You want the red iPhone cover or the blue iPhone cover? You want to vote for the red team? You want to vote for the blue team? Accept the framework we have given you, operate within that, and call it freedom. And all the time, we're cultivating a useless, harmless, basic American faith that looks just like the rest of the world with a little bit of the rough edges sanded off that can help nobody. Why should I serve in the church? I'm the customer. Why should I go around the world to tell people about Jesus? Isn't that colonization anyway? Evangelism. Well, they don't need to know the gospel. They need to know that what they're doing is wrong. And besides, I'm not going to waste my day. I've got time, places to be. I'm late to pray. Well, I can pray from home. Why do I need to pray with the church? And so then no wonder people come in and they say, well, I tried it and it didn't work for me. If you tried that, you didn't try Jesus. And no wonder it didn't help you. Because that's not what Jesus said. Do you consider yourself to be mature in Christ because you have this stoic ability to endure an emotional church service and still stay detached and see what's going on? You're wretched. You're blind. You're naked. You think you're doing great, and you're not. Even if I were to thunder from this pulpit today and rattle the windows and call out the exact thing you're dealing with, don't worry, everybody. A quick drive home will cure you. By the time you get home, you won't care anymore. 
You might still think about it. You might still have your notes written down. But you'll come back and you'll be just fine. Most of you just want to get along with the world as much as possible. Even though James 4.4 said, enmity with God is friendship with the world. If you love the world, James says, you hate God. And that's even for some of y'all young folks in here too. But what about my life? My, I'm getting started. I'm going to miss out on everything my friends is doing. I want to love the world. Well, then you hate God. I don't hate God. Well, according to the Bible, if you do this, it's evidence of this. Micah 2.11 says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I'll preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. And we have those preachers. They'll tell you about anything you want to hear. They'll tell you any kind of sordid story you want to hear to titillate your fantasy. They'll tell you any sin you like is acceptable and okay. The Lord will vomit us out of his mouth. He'll bend over and wretch and we'll come pouring out, left on the ground for the dogs. We don't even have stomach for revival in this country. Well, I'm waiting, I'm praying on the Lord to send the fire, and once, the, once I get grabbed hold of the Lord, then I'll be revived. The lack of passion that you're waiting to hit you like a bolt out of heaven is the problem that Jesus had with Laodicea. You don't have any zeal. You're lukewarm. There's no fire. You're not even cold. You see something, wow, we really could use revival in this country. Anyway, what time is it? I've got a reservation. The Lord won't respond to that. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn where he said, Stay, thou insulted spirit, stay. Can you imagine coming to the church and saying, Holy Spirit, don't even bother with us. We don't deserve you. Lack of passion, lack of fire, lack of zeal. That is the problem. But perhaps I can call your attention here to the imminent danger. Christ will cast us away. A lukewarm church is no true church. Some of you will live to see it in your own life. You will think, that you grew up and grew out of Christianity, you'll think that you finally got to the place where you realize there's no need for this in a modern society. And you will think that it was you, when in fact it was Jesus Christ vomiting you out of his mouth and saying, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, that my church may be pure. You're too dull to notice. It's a narrow road, y'all. Are you sure you're on it? Because there are lots of people that find the way to destruction. It's wide, it's easy. And if you try to have a, a, a painless religion, that's where you'll end up. It's a narrow, difficult road that leads to life, and there are few that find it. And there will be many that show up in the last day, convinced that they're welcomed in, that will be sent away to eternal fire. Your soul is thin, your tastes are childish, and your eyes are dry. And Jesus Christ is nauseated by it. Nauseated. Not looking on you and saying, well, they'll, they'll get it eventually. It makes him sick. Look what he says to the church in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I discipline and reprove. So be zealous and repent. I, do you see how Jesus says, I counsel you? He's the firstborn of all creation. He's going to give them advice. Jesus is being sarcastic here. I know you're not going to listen to any command I give you, so let me just give you a piece of advice. Since you don't need my help, since you're rich and you don't need anything from me, let me just give you a nickel's worth of advice. And he gives them three corrections that they have to make. Number one, buy from me gold refined in the fire. They had riches, but they weren't laying up treasure in heaven. 
They had all sorts of stuff. It was false riches. So their lives were wasted because they spent all their planning and all their time and all their fury towards gathering stuff and it was all going to burn away one day. And he says, I can give you gold refined in the fire, meaning I can make you live a life that when I look upon it on the judgment seat with my fiery gaze will last forever. You've got to let go, y'all, of the little vanities that are cluttering up your life and save your efforts for things that will last forever. Matthew 19, 21, Jesus told a man, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Well, we don't have to sell all that we have. No, but some of y'all might. Some of us might, shall I say. Some of us are just too owned by the things that we own. And we're going to get to heaven, and you're not going to have anything to show for it. The second thing he tells them, white garments. Nakedness is the shame of sin. And they needed the righteousness that only Christ could provide. Can you see how Jesus is offering to cover them with his righteousness? To people in the church, you got to stop believing that you're good. Oh, I'm good enough. I got everything I need. And uh, I'll, I'll go through the day. And if I sin, well, when I get to the end, I'll, I'll try to remember to repent at the end of the day. You got to daily run to Christ to be fitted with your robe for the day. Lord Jesus, I need your righteousness because mine is gross. It's filthy. It makes us both sick. It makes me heave when I think about it. So I need your righteousness. What does this mean? Guys, stop sinning. Stop getting drunk. Stop looking at pornography. Stop losing your temper. Stop stealing. Stop lying. Stop coveting. Stop lusting in your heart. Sometimes there's no secret. You've just got to stop. Romans 6 says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make it obey its passions. Don't let sin have control of you. Well, we can never stop. You're not allowed to have that attitude. You have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. Buy the white garments from Christ without price. And the third is salve for your eyes. They were blind. They thought they were so smart. They showed up to the conferences with the other churches and they saw how zealous and passionate they were and they just stayed back in, the, in a little bit and said, all right, this is a little unnecessary, isn't it? Why don't we just get to the, to the teaching? That's the most important thing. Okay, we're going to pray. We've been praying for like 45 minutes. How long is this going to go? They thought they were so wise. We're able to see what's really important. And Jesus said, you're blind. You can't see anything. The reason that you act that way is not because you're wise. It's because you're foolish. It's because you're childish. You've got to stop viewing the world as if your pleasure was all that mattered and the material was all that existed. Open your eyes like Elisha asked the Lord to open his servant's eyes to see the chariots of fire all around him. He said, don't you see that there's something real going on here? The battle raging around you. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, That which is seen is temporary. That which is unseen is eternal. Ultimately, these things are an act of repentance. You've got to change the way you think. You've got to change the way you act. Not look at other people and tell them, You have got to change. Stop pointing your finger at somebody else and thinking that makes you righteous. Stop sitting in this room and thinking, I know somebody who really needs to hear this. You need to hear this because God brought you here. It's all summed up in one imperative. Jesus says, Zelue, be zealous, be a zealot, be a fanatic, be crazy about Jesus. Get a little passion and fire in your heart for something that matters. For those of you that think moderation is maturity in Christ, you have not learned this passage.
Be zealous is a commandment in scripture. Romans 12, 8, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Fervent is related to the word for fever. Are you burning up with zeal for Jesus? Well, I can't make that happen. He's expecting you to make that happen. Do what it takes to get there if you're not there. Remember Jesus in the temple when he saw that they were changing money and ripping people off? And they were keeping the Gentiles out and people were using it as a thoroughfare. Jesus came. Can you imagine if Jesus got over here and flipped this keyboard over and then took the drums and chucked it to the back of the room and said, everybody out. I've had it. That's enough. My church is to be a house of prayer. What are you doing in here? The disciples saw that and they remembered the psalm, zeal for your house will consume me. Are you consumed with zeal for the house of the Lord or are you just consumed with your team ending up on top over the other team? In one sense, it's better to be cold because then at least you're open and honest with where you stand and Christ can deal with you. Jesus had long, deep, interesting conversations with people that were far from him, prostitutes and tax collectors and adulterers. But when it came to the religious hypocrites, he had nothing to say except, you whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers, get out of here until you're ready to be serious. Lukewarm is equally lost, but infinitely more numb. You can't feel anything. Repent, change your priorities. Stop sinning. Open your eyes and be zealous. Some of you have so much fire and passion for stupid things. For sports, for art, for music, for politics. Things that rightly belong to the bridegroom Jesus Christ. And you're committing spiritual adultery by giving them to somebody else. Emotional adultery is real too, don't you know? Well, we didn't do anything, but I've seen the way you talk to each other. I've seen the way you look at one another. I've seen the amount of time you spend together. And I don't care if it hasn't gotten physical yet. This isn't right. That's where a lot of you sit today. You are emotionally adulterous with Jesus Christ. So what does he say, verse 20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus stands at the door, not of the sinner, not of those that are out in the world, but of the professing Christian's heart, knocking. It's a mere 60 years after the ascension, and Jesus is already outside of the doors of the church, knocking and asking to be let back in. I don't know how you can say anything other than the fact that these words apply to our American churches, even the better ones. Consider our nation, y'all. There are thousands of churches there are millions of nominal Christians. What if they were all roused with the fire of the Holy Ghost? You couldn't stop a movement like that. Don't you know that these activist groups that are working all these changes are like a fraction of a fraction of the population? Because they're fiery and they get up and they do something about it, the world can't stop them. And here sits millions of Christ soldiers with their boots off. Isaiah 64, we have all become like one who's unclean. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. 
There's no one who calls upon your name. No one who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Rouses himself to take hold of God. The idea being you're asleep. Wake up. Wake up. Because you're like Samson lying in the lap of Delilah. And she's weaving your hair into the loom and she's closing the shuttle. Eventually she's going to get you. And the Philistines will be upon you and you will not even know that the Spirit of God has departed from you. Some of you, if the Spirit of God were to stop operating in your life, you would not even notice. But here's the good news. There's still time. Jesus is knocking on the door today. It's not over. He says, let me in. What are you doing? Let me back in. I want to sit with you. I want to dine with you. I want to be there with you. He gives us two blessings in this section. The first is that of intimacy. Intimacy with Jesus Christ. Having that bond of fellowship, that brotherly bond with Christ. The loyalty to your king and your commander. Love, even the Bible says, of that of a wife and her husband. Not a new religion, but a new life with God. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard a lost person say, I don't have a problem with Jesus, but I can't stand the church. Well, I'm not calling you to the church. I'm calling you to Christ. I'm calling the church to Christ. This is what matters above all else. Do you know God? Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, O God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What will make heaven heaven is that Jesus will be there. And if you have no interest in a relationship with Jesus Christ, I, I can't help you, because that's what he's offering. And the second blessing is that of authority. I will let you sit with me on my throne you will be crowned in heaven, Christian. Sit with Jesus on his throne. If that wasn't in the Bible, we'd call it blasphemy. But because you have shared in solidarity with Christ through salvation, how many times in the Bible does it say we are in Christ? Because he has taken humanity unto himself. We are united with Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 17 says we are co-heirs with Christ. His inheritance is our inheritance. John 16, 15, Jesus said, I will give you all that the Father has given me, which is everything. His inheritance is ours. In the kingdom, we will rule and reign with Christ. But he says here, only if you overcome your lukewarm heart. Those of you sitting here, how long is this guy going to keep on going? This is for you. Don't you want your life to mean something? Like really to mean something. To matter when it's all over. Do you want to come to the end of your life? And all everybody will be able to say is, well, this was their Facebook feed. These are the shows they liked. This is the team they rooted for. And uh, I guess that's about it. That's not what any of us wants. How would you like to do things that last forever, that are going to be rewarded forever? How would you like to engage in a fight that is worthy of all of that zeal and fire to face an enemy who wants you dead, but at the behest of a king who's never lost a battle and wants to empower you to fight? How would you like to arrive in heaven and not be sent away, but to have the Lord say, kneel before me and have him put a crown on your head? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, I've been to church my whole life, seen a lot of hypocrites, and I just can't stand it. You know, Jesus hates false Christianity more than you do. 
You only know the word hypocrite because Jesus came up with it. So why not try the real thing? I don't want to just be part of some weird Christian culture. Hey, guess what? Me neither. I'm going to be part of God's kingdom culture. Get out there and rock the world for Jesus Christ because he is worthy of that. And when we step out, that's when we begin to see the world transform before our eyes. Your family can be restored. Your life can be redeemed. Your nation can be revived. But Ephesians 3 says that power that God has over and above all that we ever ask or think or imagine is the power at work within you. It's not sitting around and saying, please, Jesus, do something. He says, I've already sent you my spirit. You go do something. You get out there. You say what needs to be said and don't be afraid. You take a stand. You say, we're not doing this in this house anymore, Dad. Not just taking a stand against your kids, maybe even against your own wife. Saying, we're doing this. We're going here. I don't care if you don't want to do this. This is what we're doing. It requires you to catch fire. And he's ready to ignite you today. He's knocking on your heart right now. Revival is only a prayer away. I'm not talking about national revival necessarily, but in your life. But you've got to rend your heart and not your garments. Meaning don't just make a show of religion and coming forward and saying, I'm going to get it better. Really do something about this. You can give it over fully to Jesus this morning and you need to. 2 Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. He says, God is looking in the whole world. Is there anybody that I can help? And anybody whose heart is blameless that stands up and says, me, Lord. Anybody like Jonathan who says, that's enough praying under the pomegranate tree. Let's get to work and go fight. Somebody like David who says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to blaspheme the name of the living God? And stands up there all 14 years of him with a slingshot. Because I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field because there is a God in Israel. The Lord goes, where's that? Where's the Peter who says, can I walk on water with you, Lord? Where's the Paul who says, I've counted everything as lost for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Where's the C.T. stud who gave up a promising career after a, a successful tenure at Oxford to go be a missionary in China and Congo to minister to the cannibals while his wife stayed at home and prayed for him? Where's that guy? Where are the ones that are willing to give everything to follow Jesus? Lukewarm souls are disgusting to Jesus. They're thin. There's no substance. There's no fire. Are you ready to repent? Was Laodicea a symbol for the end of the age? I don't know for sure. But I do know that we are guilty of Laodicea's sin. And we've got to take their prescription if we desire to overcome. In the end, that question is immaterial. Are you lukewarm? Then you've got to catch fire today. You can come today. You can cast off those shackles. Aren't you tired? Guys, aren't you tired of living this way? Aren't you tired of going to work, coming home, sitting down, doing what you do and going to bed and coming up the next day and doing the same old thing? Don't you wish, don't you watch those old World War II movies or whatever and say, where's that? Where do I get to have some of that? Don't you read the stories in scripture and say, Lord, where's mine? Don't you see the Jesus Revolution movie and say, Lord, when's my turn? It's up to you. It's up to you because Jesus is here hollering at you through me today. Say, would you please I'm ready to revive this nation if my people will get it right. Come 
Today, cast it off. Renounce your lukewarm heart. Let the Holy Spirit purge you of the weights and the iniquities and the frivolities. And it might take more than a few minutes, by the way. I'm going to come forward after, but I really got to get going. It might take days. But do we even have the stamina to weep over sin for days? Do we even have the fire within us to rejoice in the Lord for weeks? But once you do, once the life of Christ is birthed in you, you'll be transformed, reborn, and ready to live a life that is worthy of the salvation which Christ has offered you. The battle for the soul of your generation has begun. So are you going to join the fight or are you going to return to your frivolities?